agnostics, long-haired weirdos, short-haired weirdos, vandals, hooligans. The government hug the government love. The government hug the government love. The government Welcome to The Politics Guys, a place for bipartisan, rational, and civil debate on American politics and policy. I'm Trey Orndorff, a political scientist at Oklahoma Christian University, and I'm joined, as always, by the professor of law at Chase Law School, Ken Katkin. Ken, it's a ton of fun to be the one who is back doing the show with you again. I am so pleased that you are back, Trey. I, I have missed you. I have fun with Michael, but I really feel like this show hits its stride when you and me are here. I, well, see, I feel the same way. I mean, I know that Jay and Mike, kind of, they're the past, right? And we're the future of the show. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they're, they're the old Europe and we're the new Europe. <laughs> exactly. Yes, yeah. exactly. I mean, there's nothing wrong with Russia as long as they're in there. No, anyway. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but no, no, I do want to say something uh, truly to listeners. Uh, thank you guys so much uh, for what you all did in December and for me. Uh, it has been – I've been talking with uh, uh, Ken before the show began. It's, it was a rough – you know, the end of November and December were some of my absolute most difficult times. And I really appreciated some of you guys sent, it, sent me notes. Uh, you did all kinds of things for me, and I just can't thank you all enough for that. Um, I, I was very happy to not be doing the show. Uh, you know, when you're when you're in and out of the hospital and you're doing all that kind of stuff, you know, it's hard to think about anything else when you're in a lot of pain. But it's wonderful to be able to sit here uh, and be returning to the politics, guys. And if all goes well, you know, we'll have. We, we, I, I won't have to be uh, uh, disappearing <laughs> for a few months. <laughs> Uh, unless for some good reason, like we're visiting Michael overseas or something. I don't know, something positive like that. But um, so let me give you what we've got up for on deck. I mean, of course, this week we're going to be talking about the State of the Union address, both about its content and, of course, about its presentation. Uh, when we That's going to be a lot right there. Uh, when we get down with that, we're going to be talking about a post-Bruin America. We've had a number of different cases uh, this past week uh, coming both out of the U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals in the 5th and also here in the district court, uh, federal district court in Oklahoma, concerning gun law. So we're going to take a look at that. And, and how the law is being applied in those cases. We'll also take a look at the Pennsylvania special election uh, where we saw uh, Pennsylvania Democrats sweep. We'll be talking about that and what that might mean. And then uh, depending on time, we will be finishing up by talking about what I'm going to call the Chinese balloon part two. Obviously, last week, uh, both uh, Mike and Jay talked about this, but they didn't get a chance to see everything that went, went down. And of course, today on Thursday, we had some major investigations uh, into the Pentagon on that. So we'll be getting into that as well. So we've got all of that and more coming just in a moment. Okay, so Ken, first up, I mean, the biggest news, of course, of the week is the State of the Union address, both in terms of its content and in terms of the theatrics, right, which I think you know, we actually got to uh, last go round be the politics guys hosts that dealt with the last State of the Union address. Uh, we get to do it again with this one. You know, and last time we spent some time talking about Nancy Pelosi ripping up the address kind of very yeah. publicly behind uh, uh, then President Trump. And then before that, of course, we had uh, some more uh, quiet murmurings. And then, you know, and then, then this week, of course, we have a state and union address where we, I think for the first time ever, uh, we have the president of the United States actually responding in real time. So, you know, we've, we've got that 
bit going on, which I think is useful to talk about that trajectory of the uh, of the optics of it all, but also about the the content. So I kind of thought maybe Ken, we'd start with talking about content, and then we talk about theatrics and. And what that might mean. Uh, uh, as for me, I mean, I don't think it's going to be a big surprise. I wasn't a big fan of the uh, of the State of the Union address either in content form uh, for for a number of reasons. But before we got all to to me, I was curious. You know, you're going to be likely a little bit more uh, positive on it. So, well, what was your take? Again, I've got a negative take. What was your take, Ken? Yeah, actually, my my take was very positive. Um, I I thought that um, Biden had very different uh, objectives. Um, coming into this State of the Union address than almost any president has ever had before coming into any State of the Union address, because um, it it was the context is so different, right? He's up against a, a House of Representatives that is absolutely the only agenda they have is to try to destroy his presidency, and there's there's nothing there's nothing else on their agenda, and so he's got to figure out you know how to how to use this speech as a way to neutralize some of that. And I think looked at from that perspective, um, he did an excellent job because, you know, for instance, there'd been all this uh, brinksmanship. There, we're still hearing a lot of brinksmanship about, um, you know, that the, 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 some Republicans want to not raise the debt ceiling and, and crash the full faith and credit of the, of, of the United States government for the first time in history. And, you know, I, I think there's a segment uh, in, of the Republican Congress members who want to do that just because that's what they want to do, not not because they have some, not as a negotiating chip or not because they have some substantive agenda that they're trying to um, bargain for, um, but but just because they actually want to, you know, wreak havoc on the country and ruin the Biden presidency that way. But but rhetorically, they never say that. Rhetorically, they always say it's about forcing spending cuts. And so I think that the biggest thing he accomplished um, uh, was, you know, he addressed head on you know whether they that whether they're going to um, you know force uh, spending cuts in 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 Medicare and Social Security, and he got every one of them to stand up and say that they wouldn't do that. And so I think that that takes the the primary uh, rhetorical chip away from the Republicans, and you know really accomplished a significant step um, towards uh, preventing a, a, a debt crisis. So I'd say that was the. That was the number one most significant thing that happened in the in the speech. I'll I'll say more, but I want to first give you a chance to respond to that. Sure. I mean, the the problem, of course, is is that he. I mean, a he outright lies a number of times because he wants to be able to put his his presidency in a positive economic light. And while you're, the rhetorical device you talked about is a fine and good one in the sense of maybe a winning him points, it certainly doesn't fit with his narrative of earlier on in the debt where, look, we're fixing debt problems and Republicans are creating debt problems, which is also not true or even consistent with what he's earlier in his career said. So like – so for example, um, you know, he argues that inflation has fallen every month last six months while uh, take-home pay has gone up, end quote. But of course, that's not exactly true. Uh, Specifically, for example, we recognize that take-home pay has not gone up. It has actually not kept up with inflation over even the uh, last eight months. So there were there was a number of things like that, which were the talk culprit. And of course, he wants to place that blame out on Biden, which Trump does, onto Trump, Biden does. 
So, for example, and I was laughing about this, right? Uh, you know, he argues, hey, we, you know, who should be worried about when it comes to racking up the national debt? I mentioned this, you know, last go round when we were talking about spending. Who's the culprit? Donald Trump. And of course he is, but not without his willing participants, the Democrats, because the majority of the trillions of dollars of accumulated debt were due to coronavirus relief packages, and those were bipartisan packages. So he takes all these easy and stupid shots uh, to set up basically just, I mean, maybe that moment. So yay, I don't know. But 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 on a deeper content level, like what he's proposing here is either a, a half-truths moving forward to trying to attack Republicans. Yeah, well, he had to attack Republicans. I don't think there's any purpose in doing anything other than attacking Republicans because he's in a context where, you know, again, the the the, the, the that's the only thing that the Republicans, their only agenda is to try to make him a failed president. There's no substantive issues that he could be working with them on. But I, I actually don't, I, I do want to respond to some of the things you said. Um, it's It's true that he was spinning some of those numbers a bit um, but I think you used the word outright lie and um, nothing, nothing that he said was an outright well, no, lie. No, I mean, the yeah. take home pay has gone up is an outright lie. Well, it depends Period. on the time frame. Out- no, he says hour- the last six months and in the last six months it has not gone up in inflationary terms. It has gone down like that's that, that's there's nothing there's nothing. Yeah. Average maybe. hourly earnings increases exceeded consumer price increases on a monthly basis in both November and December 2022. That's I'm reading that from the New York Times right now from their fact checking. Um, so you know, I guess it really depends on on how you count the time frame. Um, but um, the 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 New York Times deemed that to be a, a claim that needs context, but is not a lie. And uh, um, I, I could I could read the whole two paragraphs if if you want me to. But I think the the punchline. Well, I mean, I'll yeah, give yeah. you an example. I mean, even let's take a look. I'm taking a look at the Washington Post, the Washington Examiner, and Fact Check, uh, City Union Fact Check, and all three of them put that into the false claim. I'm going to say that the New York Times puts it in the context of I like the New York Times, but they're putting it in the context of needs context yeah. because they're giving it a positive spin for him. So I, I hear that, but. I'm not sure I would put all of my chips on just the New York Times fact checker. Give it again that they have an editorial slant, similarly to the other ones that I've pointed out that are different. But nevertheless, continue. Yeah, well, I'll, I'll read the context that they give it, um, and I, I, you know, I, I, I don't have any reason to doubt any of these statistics that they're giving. Um, the Times says it is uh, the quote that they're responding to you is the one that you said: inflation has fallen every month for the past six months, while take-home pay has gone up. Um, and again, the quote has gone up doesn't say every month for the past six months that that half of it only goes to um, uh, when inflation has fallen. Um, So um, when when the Times responds to that, they say um, it is true that inflation has slowed for the past six months. That means that prices are still increasing, but they are doing so more gradually. The consumer price index ticked up by 6.5% in the year through December, which is notably slower than the 9.9% peak in June. Um, so it has slowed down from, from 9% to 6.5% over the past six months. Um, now that's still uh, higher than what was typical in the past, of course, but it is, it's a true statement that it's, it, the, if it was uh, 9% um, uh, through June and then 6.5% in the six months through December, that's fallen. Um, then finally, uh, also the, about the wages, it says it is also true that wages are climbing sharply 
compared with the pace that would be normal. But for much of 2021 and 22, wage gains struggled to keep up with rapid price increases. That has recently begun to change. Average hourly earnings increases exceeded consumer price increases on a monthly basis in both November and December. So again, you but know, over if, those, that's, so for example, if you head to the Bureau of Labor Statistics and you yeah. take a look at what are the real weekly earnings adjusted for inflation and measured in do, uh, dollars valued at their average level, they've declined 3.7% since Biden has taken office in January 2021. So I hear what the Times is saying there. Well, uh, Biden didn't make any claim about since 2021. He just said inflation's fallen in the last six no, months. No, no, no. That's in terms of, that's yeah. in terms of uh, earnings adjusted for inflation. Yeah, so but in, again, he didn't in, say, no, he didn't in say, none he of the slices, did, including did. the past six months, though, have they gone up relative to inflation over that period? Yes. In the past two months, they've gone up relative to inflation over that period in, in the last two months, not in the whole last six months. But he didn't say that um, take-home pay has gone up over the last six months. He just said take-home pay has gone up. And that's literally true over the last two months. Even adjusted for inflation. <laughs> I mean, I guess maybe. But yeah. if, if, if anybody writes the sentence and says inflation has fallen every month for the last six months while take-home pay has gone up during – I mean, the implication is is during that period. I mean, okay, fair. Yeah. Okay, continue. Continue. That's all. I mean, right. I mean, that's why the Times said it needs context. But it – but it, it, I it mean, need, it, it needs an actual editor who wasn't trying to lie. <laughs> who, who wasn't trying to spin it. But, uh, but, 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 well, but spin it, is a fancy word for lie, right? Like, I mean, that's just is what it is. No, he said take home pay has gone up. And that is literally true over, although over a shorter time period. Okay. Continue. Okay. Well, that, that's all the time said about that sentence. I was trying to respond to what you said about that sentence, but I, 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 more generally, I don't think any of that stuff is the important part of what happened. You know, I mean, the, 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 you know, he, he was making, um, a speech that was trying to box in the Republicans and he needed to do that. You know, I, th I think he just needed to do that, that he's he's in a context where he's going to have to be on offense all the time or he has no chance of uh, having a successful presidency. And so he was, um, you know, he's responding to a unique uh, context. I mean, you know, there he was like facing like hecklers who were screaming and calling him a liar, you know, even on things that he was telling the absolute truth about and that none of these newspapers would contest. And so when he's up, up against an audience like that, that, you know, has no interest in having a, a reasonable, reasoned conversation, then the, the only the only thing he should be trying to be accomplishing is putting them into boxes and putting them on the defense. And, and I think I think he did a good job of that. Maybe. Now, I mean, I'm not going to disagree. And that gets into the, into the theatrics of it. I mean, the answer, though, is, is that at this juncture, there isn't those kinds of dialogues or acceptances of the State of the Union address. And again, I mean, just go back to last year uh, when, when the shoes were reversed, uh, right? Uh, Pelosi wanted to be back there with her scowl and she wanted her moment on, on the limelight tearing up his address. Uh, and, and Republicans now are ramping that up one bit more this time. And, and they're going to continue to ramp up on each other one bit at a time. I guess, I guess my problem, though, is to say that at some level, and we, you know, we talked about, and I gave him a lot of credit for, let's see, how long, how long ago would have been his, his sometimes deemed ominous red speech, uh, although I actually kind of liked it. 
Mm-hmm. Wait, um, I can't remember when that was though. Now, Ken, <laughs> I can't remember which year it was either. It was yeah. either it was either when he first took office or it was, or it was a year later. I, I can't. Yeah, remember. And, and one of the things that he got attacked for in that speech was that it was too partisan. That he was he was coming out too hard against Republicans. But I actually took a positive view of that speech because I thought that was the right context for it. But. I get what you're saying strategically about the need to box, uh, potentially box in your opponents, but he's just boxing them as a move in the State of the Union address. Like that's, that's not the device for the State of the Union address. Or if it is now, when that maybe this comes back to the theatrics, then yeah. really we don't have a State of the Union address anymore. We just have a theatrics address. And, and, maybe, well, and maybe that's what we have now. I mean, yeah. that's, well, that's I, a different I, question. Except, except I don't think it's just theatrics because I think what was happening was, um, I mean, first of all, none of that would have worked for Biden if he hadn't have uh, you know, correctly predicted that you know, as he was giving his address – he was going to be heckled and 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 things like that, right? Everything everything that he did that was effective was you know his comebacks to things that the Republicans were screaming at him. Like he wouldn't have had a situation, you know, to even been able to say, oh well, if we're all in agreement that nobody's going to cut Social Security, you know, because he's sort of is st- saying like, I, you know, I'm not going to accept it if the when the Republicans try to cut Social Security and Medicare, and then they start screaming, you know, you lie, we're not going to cut Social Security and Medicare. I mean, if they hadn't started screaming like that, then they wouldn't have given him the opportunity to say, oh, I'm, I'm glad we all agree that we're not going to cut Social Security and Medicare. Let's 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 all no, stand but, up. But, but that's, that. a, that's, so he, a, that's a thea- that's a that's a new phenomenon. That's a theatrics. Yeah, absolutely new. new, but it but it, it's necessary because again, because it's not just about. I think in the past you might have had contexts where. The Democrats and the Republicans had substantive disagreements, and you know sometimes they'd be able to c- compromise and do something, and sometimes they wouldn't be able to compromise and they they wouldn't do anything. But I, I think it, it's a relatively new phenomenon, maybe at least new since the 1850s and 60s when you had similar thing where 1850s and 60s. I'm saying where where um, you know it's actually you know the 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 idea that the one party in the Congress has is there's just any amount of harm we can inflict on the country is good, um, even by our own lights of what harm is, because then we're inflicting harm on the president. And so I think I think if that's if that's the context that he's working in, you know, he really needs to use any opportunity he has for public engagement with the opposition um, to, to, to highlight to highlight that that's what they're up to. And the State of the Union is one of the only opportunities that the president has where he can be in the same room you know, with the congressional Republicans on camera while the public is watching and, and you know, use that opportunity to box, to, to box them in. And so I, so I, mean, I but think but it, effectively it, the, the big thing he does then, Ken, is so he boxes them in on the third rail of American politics, which is we can't ever cut spending. And there we are. But that, I mean, that's a, okay, that piece of it is great, but it doesn't vibe with the rest of his speech in part, which is he is specifically calling out too much debt, too much debt, all Donald Trump's fault. But, you know, again, I agree with you, Donald Trump and Republicans spent too much money, but that was Democrats too. That, that, that was that bipartisan stuff you were talking about. The only thing we ever get bipartisan is let's spend more. Uh, so yeah, he, he, his boxing is effectively to say, well, here's this one thing where we won't cut it. Well, no, I, I, that just doesn't seem like a big state of the union win to me. 
Well, I mean, he addressed uh, deficit issues, you know, and again, I don't think his major issue is that he's a deficit hawk, but, no, but, no. but, 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 but I think he did address them in two ways. Like he, first of all, um, you know, pointed out that deficits grew every year under Trump and they shrunk every year under him. And I hear what you're saying about the, um, you know, the growth under Trump being bipartisan with respect to the COVID relief bills. I, I get that. But I think he did, first of all, say that, you know, that's been reversed, like the deficits are shrinking every year now. And also um, that he would shrink them even more, um, you know, primarily through um, uh, both increases in tax enforcement um, and increases in in tax, uh, 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 tax rates on uh, corporations and on individuals over 400,000. And so that that's a way of addressing the deficit. It's not, um, you know, the way that the Republicans want to address the deficit. But it's not like he didn't talk about how he would address deficit deficit spending. But you know, even on so I mean, I, I hear that. But so to come back to where he boxed them in, here's here's another uh, here's another Biden who said, quote, we have we, we newer liberal Democrats are rejecting the theory of our more senior colleagues, which was that if you spend enough money, you can solve any problem, end quote. What is he going to do about it? Well, that new Biden is going to have a federal budget where we're going to, quote, it took this country 100, 185 years to reach an annual expenditure from the federal budget of $1 billion. He goes on to say, just nine years later, we had reached $200 billion, And after four more years, we have exceeded $300 billion. And what does he want to do as a result of that? Uh, young Biden says, well, we have to look at where spending is, including in, well, you guessed it, Social Security and Medicaid. Yeah. So, I mean, what, again, I say is, is I mean, he's boxed them in when, but it, are they fundamentally wrong? Is old Biden fundamentally wrong? Well, I, I, I let me try to separate what I think are two very separate issues, but um you know, maybe you don't agree that these are separate issues. Maybe. But, I'm not even yeah, sure what yeah. they are. So, <laughs> so, so the, 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 the two issues are going to be, you know, the, 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 the fiscal um, uh, security of Social Security and, and, and Medicare on the one hand um, and the debt ceiling crisis um, on the other hand. Um, and so I, I think they're completely separate issues. Right. So I, I think that when the Republicans are, are saying, um, you know, or, or were before the State of the Union address saying, um, you know, we're going to force cuts in Medicare and Social Security in order to agree to raise the debt limit, um, that what they don't care about at all is forcing any cuts in Social Security or, or Medicare, that they don't want to do that. Um, they're, they're just saying that so that they can have a fig leaf over um, doing what they really want to do, which is just um, throwing the whole country into fiscal and economic crisis by, by not raising the debt ceiling. And so they're, they're, they're trying to find something that they can say they want just based on it being any random thing that they know that Biden won't agree to so that so that they then, you know, when he doesn't agree to it, can say, well, it's his fault and uh, this whole crisis is his fault. So that the true agenda is to not lift the debt ceiling and, and to, to cause the U.S. to default on its debt. So, okay, and, okay. And, and, that's and that's the, a valid point because yeah, you had two yeah, pieces of it. So I'm going to respond yeah, a little bit. Yeah, yeah. Part of the problem – and this is sometimes where we have a little bit more than a little bit of a difference when we're, when we're analyzing, say, uh, Supreme Court decisions. You see, I mean, you see Republicans. You know, law, I think in this case we're talking about lawmakers, right? You yeah. see Republican lawmakers as being almost a uniform lockstep whole, and a lot of times your theory of therefore how they're going to behave and move assumes that there is a complete unification oh. among them on those issues. And I, I have frequently and often disagreed with you on that front. But 
mean, I mean, right now, it, it seems even harder potentially to take that view that you're using to analyze yeah. as a monolith. No, given actually, we just saw the problems <laughs> with the speaker, right? I mean, like, yeah, they, can, they couldn't even elect a speaker. I mean, let there's me obviously not a... Let me agree with you. I'm not taking that view, and I didn't oh, mean okay. to sound like I was. No, I, I wouldn't even attribute that to most of the Republicans in the House, but I would I would attribute that view to the wing of the Republicans that seems to be driving the, the car right now, the far right wing of the Republicans. I don't think that's where most Republicans are, but I think... That's where enough Republicans in Congress were, even though I think they were a minority, even of the Republicans in Congress. So let me clarify that. I'm talking about, you know, the Jim Jordans of the world. I'm, I'm not, uh, you know, talking about, you know, the Nancy Maces of the world. And uh, um, but but I think there's enough of them that, you know, they could have, you know, if they wouldn't have gone along with raising the debt ceiling, then the debt ceiling couldn't have been raised. So they, they could have forced that. I mean, with the thin majorities that McCarthy has to work with. You know, if, if there's if there's 10, 15, 20 Republican Congress members who are of the view that they just simply do want to cause a debt default and that, that none of the so-called negotiating chips are what they're really after. I'm not attributing that at all to the majority of Republicans, but I'm attributing it to the, um, uh, the, the, the group of Republicans that can wield that kind of power. And that's what I'm saying is a different issue than, um, you know, if social if there's also a separate issue that Social Security or Medicare are um, you know fiscally in fiscally unsound footing, then I'm I'm for addressing that. I don't I don't think it has to be addressed through cuts. Um, I think it could be addressed through different sources of, of revenues for it. But I but I, I yeah I, I think it shouldn't be running so, I mean, on a. But, on a but, but I think some of Biden's comments were probably undoubtedly uh, pointed at Senator Rick Scott from Florida. Um, taking a look at kind of those reauthorization plans, which again look very similar to what Biden had once proposed. So maybe you're saying that he's not at all responding to the Scott kinds of proposals that were similar to his, but ra- rather to this smaller minority of ceiling. Am, am I hearing that correctly then? Yes, um, I think exactly. I, that's what I think, because I think there's two different groups of Republicans. And really two different issues. There's some Republicans who actually do care. You know, they want to cut Social Security and Medicare spending. That's their issue. And, you know, th- they might try to do that through whatever means, you know, or uh, ways that they can get that done. You know, th- there's others who don't care about that. Um, what they care about is they want to create chaos and destroy Biden's presidency. And, you know, there is a little bit of overlap because, you know, one of the ways, one of the th- one of the points of uh, overlap between those two wings of the Republicans is, you know, if if you threaten Biden, well, we're gonna we're gonna crash the the economy by not raising the debt ceiling unless um, you agree to cuts in in Medicare and and Social Security. Well, then that's something that appeals to both those two different wings of the Republicans. But but I think that fundamentally those are different wings of the Republicans. I don't I don't know that Tim Scott wants to be, or I'm sorry, Rick Scott wants oh, okay. to be an agent. Yeah, Rick Scott. I don't know that he wants to be an agent of chaos who just destroys the government. I think he really does want to, um, you know, get rid of Social Security and Medicare. You know, whereas I think, you know, your 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 Marjorie Taylor Greens and Lauren Boebert's and 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 Jim Jordans of the world, they really couldn't care less about uh, making Medi- Medicare, Social Security more more fiscally sound. Um, what they care about is um, doing big dramatic things that destroy the government. Um, and so I, I think those are separate wings in the party and that the issues are really separate and that it's 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 possible to work with the, the group that's concerned about the, the fiscal uh, soundness of Social Security and Medicare. I think it's it's possible to negotiate with that group and to come up with solutions. You know, that that did happen during the Reagan era. Um, you know, they, they did make some adjustments that forestalled 
um, a social security crisis for about another 30 years by raising the age a little bit and raising the amount of withholding taxes a little bit. Um, and that, that kind of thing could be done again. Um, but, you know, between Democrats and Republicans who are serious about wanting to solve those problems. But I do think you have a wing of the Republicans who, you know, just that's not a problem they care about. Um, what they what they care about is is creating chaos. And so I think I think Biden was mainly addressing himself to that group, to the group that didn't really care about fixing Social Security or Medicare, but just wanted to have some, some looking for anything that they knew that Biden wouldn't agree to so that they could demand it and then use it as an excuse to not raise the debt ceiling. So we kind of get maybe to the last question piece of it. And we're, we've already crossed over into that, that, that area of uh, theatrics as well. And so I think it goes well. You know, some, someone I've brought up before is the, the famous researcher David Mayhew uh, argues that when you're understanding individual members of Congress, uh, that it's going to be more about uh, position taking than anything when it comes to uh, re-election and re-election priorities for candidates because that's how individuals get re-elected. And so one of the things that you and I have talked about on this show, and I think it comes here into the State of the Union, and, and I hear this as being part of your analysis as I listen to it more carefully, and that is, is what Biden has to do is put on his side of the show to box in Republicans who are doing – a minority of, of uh, elected Republicans who are doing their side of the show because that's really what people are going to take a look at and understand. Um, so, I mean, do you do you think really then at the end that the State of the Union is now just the most recent iteration of the position-taking uh, 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 shift in American politics? Well, I think it accomplished something real other than, other than just, um, um, you know, kind of uh, projecting messages to the public. I mean, I think as, as an actual real, uh, real world thing that happened there, um, I don't think there's going to be um, a, a showdown over raising the debt ceiling where uh, the Republicans insist on cuts to Social Security as the, the, the basis for why they won't raise the debt ceiling. I think that will not happen. I think he succeeded in taking that off the table by, by the, the, the clever move that he did. And so that that's I think that, I mean, if I'm understanding what how you're describing Mayhew's thesis, um, it would be that, um, you know, real things like that aren't getting accomplished, but that it's more just about uh, electoral positioning. But yeah. but I do think something real got accomplished there. OK, well, I'm going to pause us here on this so that we forward. But before we do that, we're just going to take a moment. So, Ken, this week we saw two sec uh, separate and really kind of important Second Amendment lower-level cases. Uh, again, one of these coming out of the uh, Fifth Circuit Courts of Appeal uh, and the other uh, here from a federal Oklahoma judge. Uh, but what they ruled was, so in the uh, three-panel judge in the U.S. Court of Appeals, they ruled that a 30-year-old federal law prohibiting a person uh, subject to domestic violence restraining order can't purchase a firearm. They decided that that was unconstitutional in light of the most recent Supreme Court Second Amendment decision, Bruin. Meanwhile, here in Oklahoma, a federal judge ruled that, quote, a federal law prohibiting people who use marijuana from owning firearms is unconstitutional. Again, why? Uh, because this has to do. Now, in Oklahoma, just to be clear, uh, we do have uh, medical marijuana license. And so what was actually happening in this particular case was, you know, you, you can't if you get a license, then you automatically cannot purchase uh, a, a firearm. 
Um, now, what this all comes back to, again, I've been uh, mentioning it, was the New York State Rifle and Pistol Association versus Bruin. Uh, and what that case ultimately came down to, uh, it's Justice Thomas who writes that, and we actually talked about it on the show, uh, but this was the, the ruling of the court. We hold that when the Second Amendment's plain text covers an individual's context, the Constitution presumptively protects that context. To justify its regulation, the government may not simply posit that a regulation promotes an important interest. Rather, the government must demonstrate that the regulation is consistent with this nation's historical tradition of firearm regulation, end quote. Just to kind of bring us all up to speed. And in both of these cases, the Supreme, uh, the, the U.S. Court of Appeals at the fifth level uh, and here in Oklahoma at the uh, district level were arguing which they, could, they couldn't find that historic tradition. So, I mean, Ken, we've already talked about Bruin, which was not a case that you uh, you liked. So I I am curious, though, there's a lot of debate on both left and right about whether these uh, two cases are effectively upholding the Thomas ruling of that historical tradition of firearm regulation. What do you think about that? Well, I mean, one of the many things I don't like about the Bruin decision, I mean, I could find 10 different reasons to hate that decision, but one of the many reasons I don't like it is that it actually makes it impossible to answer the question that you just asked, right? Because it gives no guidance whatsoever that anybody can use in a predictive way about about what kinds of gun control uh, um, uh, regulation could pass this new test and, and, and what kind um, couldn't. Um, the, 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 what the court sort of said in Bruin on that, on that question is that unlike with every other constitutional right other than the right to bear arms, um, there's now going to be a unique test for how we judge um, when the government is allowed to make certain infringements against uh, the Second Amendment right to bear arms. So with other, with other rights, um, the, the test that's always used is, is called a strict scrutiny test in constitutional law. So the idea is that if you've got a, a right that's presumptively protected, like freedom of speech or free exercise of religion or something like that, um, there, there can be some government actions that, that permissibly can, can interfere with your exercise of that right, um, but only if the government is trying to pursue a compelling uh, government interest and only if um, there's no way that the government could actually attain that compelling government interest other than by interfering in some ways with pres- presumptively protected rights. Um, and so, you know, that, that's why even though there's freedom of speech, you know, the, the government can still prohibit um, shouting fire in a crowded theater and things like that because, um, you know, the, the, there's really no way to protect the public order against stampedes and things like that um, if people are allowed to falsely shout fire in a, a crowded theater. And so under that kind of strict scrutiny test, um, you know, preserving the public safety and the public order could be a compelling interest. The lack of reasonable alternative means by which that interest could be uh, obtained um, um, means that there can be some minor infringements, minor infringements on what would otherwise permissibly be a constitutional right. But in but in Brune, the court um, says, well, the thing about the Second Amendment is that guns um, are are dangerous, and so um, therefore, you know, if we were going to apply the ordinary strict scrutiny test. The government would always be able to say, well, we need to have certain kinds of gun control or gun safety regulation um, to protect uh, people from from getting shot 
you know, mm-hmm. from ac- accidental shootings, from from uh, um, uh, uh, criminal shootings, whatever. And so, um, gun control regulation is um, a, a, certainly an effective way, and sometimes even the only effective way of doing that. And 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 the court says since since that argument would would work a lot of the time under a standard strict scrutiny test, and therefore um, gun control regulation would be permissible, and there'd be it would be more permissible. Um, than, than other forms of regulation that tend to infringe other forms of constitutional rights, um, we're just not going to use that test. And so what the court says instead is um, it's going to use this different test, and this is really where your question started, where um, instead of worrying about what the government's interests are or whether the, the whether the government's interests are compelling, whether there's other means that the government could achieve its compelling interests without um, in, infringing the, the rights that the court has recognized, they say, no, the only thing we're going to look at is whether um, the type of regulation uh, that the government is engaging in now um, would be analogous to types of um, regulation that um, governments engaged in around the time of the uh, framing. Um, of of the Second Amendment, and there's a little bit of debate in the opinions about what what is the relevant time frame. Is it the time of the Second Amendment, or is it the time of the Fourteenth Amendment? Because it's the the Fourteenth Amendment made the Second Amendment of rights applicable against state and local law, uh, but that didn't happen until after the Civil War. So the court sort of hasn't resolved that. But clearly, we're talking about some timeline, yeah. you know, r- ranging from the colonial era yeah, to I'm, the I'm gonna, Civil I'm, War. I'm going to pause yeah. you just for a second there, Ken, not because I disagree at yeah, this juncture. Yeah. But rather, you you did one of those things where you know I teach undergraduates and you teach graduate students. <laughs> yeah, yeah. What you're referring to there, right? So, re- re- listeners, remember that the Bill of Rights is all prohibitions primarily on Congress. Congress shall pass no law that affects uh, freedom of speech or press or assembly, et cetera. Uh, and then what uh, Ken is talking about there is what's called incorporation, which is at post the passage of the 14th Amendment, the Supreme Court kind of painfully and slowly says, well, there are certain rights that are so fundamental to freedom in the terms of the 14th that you have to apply them not just to Congress, but to states. And so that's where you're incorporating rights to not only apply to their originally intended uh, target, which was Congress, but to also all state legislatures. And so that's what when, when he's talking about, well, the 14th uh, makes it apply. He's meaning the Second Amendment at that juncture will then post the 14th Amendment become incorporated and therefore apply to states. I just wanted to, you know, again, having a- answered that question a lot from students, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> figured I'd right. just help a little bit. There you go. There you go. Yeah. Continue. And so in, in the Thomas majority opinion, he kind of acknowledges that there's this question about what timeline is the most relevant, but he he sort of elides it because he concludes that in his view, the the framers of the 14th Amendment um, didn't think that the right to bear arms had any meaning any different than what the framers of the Second Amendment thought it meant, so that it all comes out the same anyhow. And uh, Justice Barrett, in her concurring opinion, um, says she's not actually sure about that and she'd want to see more historical research on that, um, as well as more argumentation about uh, which one would be the right one to apply. But but in any event, the, the court certainly made it clear that, that you know, that, that now if you're talking about um, any particular uh, gun control or gun safety regulation and whether it's going to um, uh, be constitutional under the court's new test, um, the question you have to ask is, were there, were there regulations like this that were being enforced um, in, the, in, the, in the colonial era um, in the in the early 19th century, or perhaps in the in the in the period around the Civil War, and uh, and you know that 
there's no way to answer those questions on any specific set of of of, of regulations because you, you, these are first of all these are analogies that have to be made. The laws wouldn't be the same. They didn't have the kinds of guns that we have. Um, you know, they didn't have you know a lot of things that were different than what we have. So that you're having to, having to analogize to laws that were around then. And second of all, you know, there was variation across jurisdictions then as there is now. So you know what what you know even in in Brune itself, where where the, the question was about um, open carriage and concealed carriage, um, you know the, the the court notes that you know every type of regulation that it um, is holding unconstitutional in Brune you know, in fact, did exist during these relevant time frames that the court's talking about. But they end up just saying that wasn't the majority view, that these ex- these types of regulations existed in small numbers of jurisdictions, but not in larger numbers of jurisdictions. And so, you know, that sort of opens this question about, you know, how do you judge, you know, how, how much is enough, you know, if you're analogizing to past regulations. So it's, it's a, it's, it's a, it's a, it's a legal test that's really, I think, ultimately designed to let judges do whatever they want. And that means there's really no way to say whether the, the, these Fifth Circuit judges or this Oklahoma judge had it right or wrong when they applied the, the test from Brune, because the Brune test is sort of crafted in a way to make it impossible to say whether they're applying it right or wrong. So now oftentimes in constitutional law, you kind of get these early decisions that are then get more clarifying in future decisions. Do you think, perhaps especially this one from the Fifth Circuit on uh, uh, domestic violence restraining orders, do you, th- do you see a future Supreme Court case here? Uh, again, I, I, I'm not a constitutional law scholar, but at the level that I do it, you see the court lays out some rule that can sometimes be a little bit <laughs> more than a little bit inscrutable, but then follows it up with additional cases that then kind of flesh it out. Do you think that's what we might see here with the Fifth Circuit ruling? You know, I, I think we should see that, but I don't think we will see that. I mean, I, I think the court actually has an obligation to do what you just said because they've created a, a rule that, you know, nobody knows what it means and it really cries out for more interpretation. Um, but, you know, you, consistent with my usual theme that we have a very corrupt contemporary court, um, I, I think that that's just what they want, you know, that, that they just want to you know, makes make a rule like that, that nobody knows what it means and just leave it at that. Because then, you know, as these lower court judges, you know, um, you know, there's going to be some lower court judges who are going to certainly sustain some gun control regulation. But what I think is, you know, that over there's always going to be other decisions like the ones that came down this week from 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 judges that really, you know, take this this doctrine as, as far as it goes and and strike down, I think, extremely reasonable gun control regulation. And, uh, you know, in this case, you know, the, the 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 guy who won his Fifth Circuit case not only had domestic violence restraining orders against him, but he'd shot his gun you know, in illegal ways, like five times in the, in the, in the month before they, before they took it away from him. And, uh, um, and, and the court still said that they can't take the gun away from this guy. And, and I think that, you know, the U S Supreme court that decided that case, the majority is, is happy to see holdings like that coming out of courts like the fifth circuit. And they're also happy not to have their fingerprints on it. And so I think they're just not going to take these cases. So one last thing on this before we need to move forward, and that is uh, in the Oklahoma case, you know, we and we've addressed this in the show a bunch as well. And I've seen this here is there continues to appear to be a grading at all kinds of levels between state marijuana policies and federal regulations of marijuana policies. And this one seems maybe a little bit more complicated uh, in that light because we have this question of, well, 
how do we regulate and deal with marijuana? And, and, and we're at the, the judge here in Oklahoma uh, basically says, well, look, the pro, you know, he says the problem is, is marijuana can be bought legally at more than 2,000 stores in our state, which is a true story. Uh, do you think that cases like this, even in, you know, obviously you, you don't think that the Second Amendment side is going to come up, but do you think that there's going to be a point where there has to be some marijuana uh, policy changes. I mean, that was something else that Biden early on had suggested was something that w- it was important to him and has just kind of died. Uh, or do you think that's just all just kind of dead on the vine? Well, I think there's going to be a lot of legislative gridlock in the Congress. Um, so, you know, certainly Biden, consistently with both Trump and Obama, um, Biden will be the third president in a row whose enforcement policies say that federal uh, um, law enforcement agencies should not um, enforce the, or should make it their extremely lowest priority. Only after they've solved every other federal crime in their jurisdictions should they spend any um, uh, law enforcement resources enforcing the Federal Controlled Substance Act uh, against um, possession or, 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 or consumption or, or even sale of marijuana um, in states where um, the, 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 the activity would be lawful under state law. So without Congress ever actually changing the law. I mean, it does remain the case that possessing marijuana, uh, producing marijuana, storing marijuana, uh, even selling marijuana, it's, it's, it's illegal everywhere in the United States under the Federal Controlled Substances Act. But we have a, a Justice Department that, you know, since the Obama era and unbroken during the Trump era, although Jeff Sessions tried to get uh, Trump to change his mind about this, but he, but he failed. Um, you know, there's no enforcement there by the federal government of those federal laws. And I feel like that because of that, even though some future president could reinstate that enforcement, um, getting Congress to change these laws is not a super high priority for, for any interest group right now because um, the laws aren't being enforced anyhow. And it's such a heavy lift to get Congress to do anything that I would say Congress isn't going to do it. But um, I do think we'll continue to see a trend towards uh, liberalization in more and more states. And I think, you know, one of the corollaries with, with, with the federal law enforcement is that even though I don't think any president has actually given an executive order saying not to enforce um, against marijuana in those states where marijuana um, is still illegal, even under state law, um, I, I think actually the Justice Department is really slowing that down a lot, too. And they might completely stop doing that as well and just leave it to just leave it to state and local authorities in states where marijuana is still illegal to enforce it. So we have a, you know, a, a pretty large de facto decriminalization at the federal level, uh, just without Congress going through the formalities of it. Okay, so I want to move us forward so that we can get at least to one more of our uh, issues. And that is the Pennsylvania special election, which I know this is something you're going to be excited about because it, it, I think it probably shows that there was lasting power to the disappointing midterms for Republicans. But what happened was Pennsylvania Democrats this week have swept three state House special elections, which gives them control of the Pennsylvania House. Now, after the general election, there was a little bit of question about how this was going to go down because you had two individuals retiring. You had somebody who was dead. Um, but this gives the Dems a majority, albeit a tiny majority of 102 to 101. That is the first time they have held uh, the Pennsylvania uh, House in over a decade. Um, But as a result of that kind of contested nature early on, since, again, we we were within the margin beforehand, 
Republicans had joined Democrats to elect their speaker and other positions. So there's questions remaining, you know, what will happen with all of that? And of course, also the questions you know, th- this is th- this this was some pretty big wins. So in the 32nd district, you have Joe uh, McAndrew who wins. Um, in the 34th district, you have a Democratic uh, uh, law, uh, lawyer, Abigail uh, Salisbury. Um, and then in the 35th district, uh, Matt uh, Gurgley, I believe is how you pronounce his name. Um, again, shifting power where Republicans in, in that in the 35th at least had held in the past. Uh, so one possibility here is this is just another example of, of, of Pennsylvania as a state either shifting or perhaps larger macro trends towards Democrats. Again, Pennsylvania has moved to a Democratic uh, uh, governor and likewise in the special election won their U.S. Senate seat. So what's your takeaway from these three special elections and a tightly uh, a tight house, but yet for the first time in a decade in Democratic hands. Yeah, well, I felt it was going to go that way because the the seats were all in Democratic districts. So it would have actually been an uphill lift for the um, for the Republicans to pick up any of those seats. And they they didn't do it. Um, but to me, one of the you know sort of most interesting aspects of the fact that there had to be these special elections and that there there was this month long window after the Democrats had won the November election and the, and the legislature gets seats, seated in January, where there's still a Republican majority in there. In fact, even though the Democrats took the majority at the election, because as you said, three of the Democrats who won their elections never showed up. One died, two, two went to statewide offices. Yeah, I think there's a... DeLuza uh, died even before he... he yeah, weirdly, he's overwhelmingly <laughs> reelected, even though he's dead. Even though he's dead. And I think there's, there's all kind of democratic jokes there, though, Ken. I'm just right, right, right. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Well, so so one thing that did happen in Pennsylvania, um, and something like it happened in Ohio, and this is a really fascinating thing because it almost happened in the U.S. Congress as well, is um, you know that the 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 Dems um, had their their candidate for who they were going to make speaker of the legislature. Um, and they'd won a majority in the elections, and they would have all voted for their own candidate to be the speaker. Um, but because they had this month-long period where they weren't a majority, um, what the Republicans decided to do, you know, instead of the sort of simple thing, which would have been maybe the Republicans will elect a Republican speaker for another month, and then there'd be a new, uh, you know, they'd, they'd be ousted after that. They crossed, uh, they crossed out, they crossed party lines. Yeah, they crossed party lines so that they could pick the Dem that they wanted, and it wasn't the one that the majority of Dems wanted. So, so the the Republicans and a, and a small handful of Dems elected a Dem speaker um, of the of the of the Pennsylvania legislature, and, and, but he wasn't the Dem that most of the Dems wanted. Um, and and so now there is going to be a big mystery about you know is that guy going to be able to hang on, um, or is there going to be some kind of reorganization? You know, and and the same thing happened in Ohio, um, where it was kind of it wasn't because of um, deaths or special elections, but there was a um, schism within the Republicans in Ohio, and the Republicans had the the majority in the in the Ohio legislature, and somehow um, about twenty of the Republicans um, got you know had had their they they were the you know they were far, small minority within the Republicans, but they picked one of their members and they got all the Dems to vote for him as well as these 20 Republicans. And they similarly were able to put a, a Republican speaker so that the Ohio legislature has a Republican speaker who 80% of the Republicans didn't want. 
um, and, the, and the Republicans are the majority. And that, I think, was the kind of thing that, you know, was attempted um, against Kevin McCarthy as well. But the, there were no plausible other Republican contenders, I guess. So McCarthy managed to hang on. But, you know, it would have been conceivable, I suppose, that if there was a group of, you know, even six or seven Republican members of Congress who wanted to pick amongst themselves who should be who should be speaker, you know, they they, they could have got all the Dems to vote for him. And, and so uh, so that's curious, kind of thing, though, because that, that, that does seem a little bit I was I'm glad you brought that up. I mean. That does seem to potentially be the kind of bipartisan thing that you're talking about, right? I mean, in this case, you have Democrats, some Democrats, and some Republicans agreeing on a on a on a speaker, but that's kind of what bipartisan looks like. Is, is yeah. you generally don't. So, I mean, maybe this is a good thing. Yeah, I think it could be. I mean, so, I think okay. it's. Quite, yeah, I, I haven't decided if it's good or bad, but I think it's fascinating, and I I won't rule out that it's good because in both in both um, Ohio and Pennsylvania's legislatures now. You do have these these speakers who are running the, the state houses um, who've been elected uh, primarily by members of the opposite party, um, but also with some members of their own party, um, but against uh, the majority of members of their own party. That, that that's happening. Uh, it's happening in, in both those two states now. So it'll. I think the, the the proof will be in the pudding. We'll find out what goes on in those legislatures and, and whether that's a, a model that works well. Okay, so we we got two little things to finish up. So we're going to just give a little uh, uh, tag-ons. One is last week, Mike and Jay uh, were uh, partially away along through their weather balloon ride (laughs) (laughs) Uh, and uh, had conversations about what ought to happen or not happen. And both of them agreed that that they thought that it was – uh, you know the, the policy to that point had made sense, but it, you know they were hoping that they would eventually shoot it down. Well, then of course uh, this past week, even after the Chinese continued to say that it was just a quote unquote weather balloon to be blown off course, uh, then it was time to move forward. So we did in fact end up shooting it down, but only after it had crossed over uh, effectively the entire continental United States and then some, because it actually comes up through Alaska. Uh, you know, so we did shoot it down, which I mean, Jay, Mike, maybe you guys are happy. Maybe you're not. I don't know. That's a good question. Uh, but then the, to, uh, on Thursday, uh, senators actually had a committee hearing where they, man, they grilled Defense Department officials on why they let it happen. And it, this was not a Republican attacking. This, this, was, a, this was a bipartisan uh, uh, attack. Uh, John Tester, for example, uh, Senator John Tester, Got he was probably the most angry that I saw saying, "quote I don't I don't want a damn balloon going over the United States when we could have taken it down." End quote. So uh, I'm just curious, what do you think either about the balloon just in a few minutes or the hearing on Thursday, where both Republicans and Democrats had nothing positive to say about the response from defense. Yeah, I, I, you know, I don't know, um, you know, the the sort of military or public safety considerations that went into the decision um, not to shoot it down as soon as possible, but to wait till I, I guess they thought there were some safety concerns about where it would land, and they waited till it was back over the water to shoot it down. I that seems odd to me, but I, I, I you know, I have no knowledge of, of why, you know, really why they would think that was the right thing to do, but. They were able to shoot it down. They they were able to recollect the the the, the parts from the, from the uh, ocean where they did shot it down. And I guess they did announce today that uh, that they, they've studied it and that this balloon definitely was capable of collecting some forms of electronic communications, um, and that it was part of a fleet of surveillance uh, balloons 
directed by the Chinese military that have gone over more than 40 countries across uh, five continents. So they sort of announced all that today. Um, you know, it seems like uh, I, 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 it's a mystery to me. Like, you know, why are the Chinese doing this? Is it is it because yeah, yeah. is is it because they think that they really can collect very useful information from these balloons that they they couldn't collect from from spy satellites and things like that? Um, you know, is that why they're doing it? Is they're doing it be, because they want to test whether we'd even notice or not, or whether we'd be able to shoot it down? You know, is it because you know, as Marco Rubio says, they they actually want us to notice and to just kind of you know do this as a provocation? You know, I I, I don't know. I don't know. Um, it's, uh, it's, it's, it is a puzzle to me. I'm sure that we have, um, good spy satellite photography that can collect all the information from China, you know, that these balloons were, uh, collecting from us and we don't have to fly balloons to do that. Um, but I don't know. I don't know. I mean, what do you think? Like, why do you think they even use these balloons? Well, I mean, I mean, the only, the only really possibilities that seem to make sense is one, you're trying to kind of almost like a sibling how far can I go and and what will your response be? So I could imagine that the real data collection question is what's the United States overall response to maybe assess how they might respond in more difficult circumstances. I'm looking at you, Taiwan, right? Like um, that kind of possibility. Then on the other hand, it could also be that, you know, again, what got released on Thursday in terms of what was being collected Depending on the kinds of communications that were getting picked up, some of those might have been things that you might not have been able to get from a satellite. Now, this 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 is getting to the edge of my technical knowledge, uh, but it could have also just been a test to see, well, well, can we get some things that we can't with these satellites? But I'd have to know more to, to, to finally say what that is. But it certainly has to be recognized that it's going to be seen as provocative which again makes me think there has to be something, like I said, to start with here, in the sense of what will there, what will our response be? Has to be part of what that data collection is. That's all I can figure. That that, that is the only thing to me that really makes. Now that doesn't put the yeah. whole puzzle together. Maybe it's just a corner of the puzzle. But but you know. So why do you want to know what our response is going to be? But clearly you want. Right. Clearly the Chinese want to know how would we respond because there's no way we don't recognize it. Uh, and they yeah, had to know that there's no way we wouldn't recognize it. But but everything about how we actually responded, you know, was 100% predictable anyhow. I don't know what they learned. Like, you know, when we noticed it, you know, we decided to shoot it down and then we shot it down. I mean, who could have thought that anything different would happen? And 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 similarly, like, you know, Anthony Blinken, you know, canceled his trip to China over it. Right. You know, again, who, who could have thought that anything different would happen? You know, I, I, I don't even know what they thought. You know, how could those be even be things that they could be learning something from? We just did the obvious things that we would do. No, and I'll be honest, that that is probably part of what makes it most disconcerting for those of us who pay attention, which is when you can't always ascertain all of the motives, it makes you speculate uh, into to <laughs> bad <laughs> motives, right? Because, because what else, where else do you go? <laughs> Yeah. Right. What right. positive motives are there? I yeah. don't know. <laughs> but I, mean, I, I can't figure out any motives. Like, yeah. If they were if they were trying to see what we would do, you know, I don't think they learned anything surprising. We did just the only things that anybody would do, you know, in that situation, the only things the United States could have done. And uh, yeah, and it, and maybe I mean, maybe they could have technologies that maybe they could use the balloon to listen in on uh, cell phone calls and things like that, that would be harder to do from a satellite. You know, I, I don't know. But I don't even know how useful that kind of stuff would be. 
Like I, I just I just can't figure well, again, out. It, I mean, this is going to sound like I'm making a joke, and I sort of am. But you know, you might be floating the balloon. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> to say, well, we're we're not gathering anything useful on this go. But again, American cell towers, because of our uh, uh, our differences with the Chinese, can't use that Chinese technology in the same way that other countries do. That includes Europe. So it could be just to say, well, how much of something? Again, I'm I have there's I have no information that cell phones and you you were throwing that there, but yeah. something like that to say, well, could we even if all we get is a bunch of people uh, chatting about uselessness. If we can intercept some of it, have we learned something about the protocol, something about the relationship between the phones or whatever to the towers or between the towers to the satellite? That'd be my only other guess there, Ken. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'm I'm at a loss. (laughs) Well, okay. (laughs) So we probably need to finish up here, but I know one of the ways that we always finish up and I haven't been able to do this for a while though is recommendations. Ken, is is there something that you would like to recommend for uh, 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 listeners? Weirdly, last week, I don't know if you knew this, but Jay recommended uh, 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 ice climbing. So, you know, his, his it was like a lifestyle. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so it, anything's on the table, Ken. Any recommendations? Oh, my goodness. Uh, I haven't had a chance to do much uh, reading or movie watching or anything like that the past the past month. Um, I uh, – yeah, I'm gonna, I you know, I think I have to pass this. I forgot to think of one ahead of time and I I I can't nothing's coming to mind right now. I've just been so busy the last the last few weeks, but uh I'll 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 have to defer to you this time on that. That's fair. Uh so on my side, as you might imagine, uh given the things that were going on recently, I, I haven't done my normal thing. So I actually watched a lot of television. Um, and so a new show on Apple TV is shrinking, which includes uh uh Harrison Ford. Let me just tell you, it's totally worth it if you haven't watched it already. Uh, do you do any Apple TV stuff again? I, I, you know, I now have it, but I've barely watched it. But actually, since you talked about TV, that reminded me I could include TV. I, I can recommend a TV show. Do it. Do uh, it. Yeah. So uh, the the um, there's a series that runs on on PBS called Austin City Limits. It's a music show, and they, being that it is based in Austin, it's usually kind of country rock or mainstream rock, but. Um, this week, the current episode that's up now, so, you know, it's, it's airing on PBS stations this week and it's, you could probably find it on any of the PBS streaming sites. Um, the band that they had on Austin city limits was a, a 1990s, uh, alternative rock band who are a favorite of mine called pavement. And they, they really broke up, uh, in the nineties. And so this was like a, a reunion show for them. And, hmm. uh, I thought it was, um, extremely good. I was really glad to watch pavement performing on Austin city limits. It's just a straight musical performance though. So there's nothing, nothing else about it to see. So very different. I love it. So even when we both do television, we go, we go different routes, which is perfect. Yeah. yeah. Well, Ken, it has been a lot of fun doing the show with you again after a hiatus. Yes, I'm so glad that we're back together. I'm glad we even got to, you know, argue a little bit today. You know, we got both got our at some point we got <laughs> we both tried to talk over each other. So that shows where we're back to the old uh, politics guys thing. Exactly, exactly, right? Just because I've been gone doesn't mean I can't take shots at you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and just because I'm chronically ill doesn't mean that you can't even though you shouldn't take shots at me. No, excuse <laughs> <laughs> Uh, anyway, but listeners, I hope you guys have enjoyed this show, but that is it for this particular episode. If you are not already a supporter of the politics guys, well, you should be, you absolutely should be. And I hope you'll consider becoming one, uh, because without supporters, well, this wouldn't be happening. Bonus, you get all kind of goodies, right? So I think one of my favorites 
is the fact that you get an ad-free version of everything that we put out, uh, plus a, uh, a mid, the full version of our uh, Supportive's exclusive midweek show where we break away from the constraints of the news cycle and do all kinds of different kinds of things. As a matter of fact, one of the cool things that Ken and I had been doing before I had to take a hiatus was we were going through uh, the Constitution in different ways. And I know that uh, uh, Ken, you and Mike had the opportunity to do a little bit of that. We're going to be coming back to Article 1, Section 8. So we'd love to have you there uh, for that show. Um, and you're going to get that. Uh, again, you get a little preview if you are uh, uh, just uh, joining us. But if you are a supporter, you get that full show and you get it ad free. Supporters also can join our very active Discord group. I've been getting back into Discord. That's been a lot of fun and connecting with everybody again. Uh, it's kind of like coming back home. Uh, and there's even a politics guy's gear and other benefits. It all depends on your level of support. So you, to check any of this out, and I highly recommend that you do. What you can do is you can head to patreon.com slash politics, guys. Uh, if you'd like to support us on Venmo, I know that cash apps are all the rage. We are at politics, guys. You can also support the show through PayPal, although that one I know, you know not as people do that anymore. But if you want to do it any of those ways, you can also see all the different ways you can support the show by heading to our website, politicsguys.com slash support, and see all of those different methods would be at Patreon, Venmo, or otherwise. Now, if you'd like to get the Midweek uh, Supporters Show, but you're not in a position financially to support it, one of the cool things that we do is, yeah, you can still do that. All you got to do is just reach out to Mike at Mike at politicsguys.com, uh, and he can get you set up with that. So, whether or not you're a supporter, we really would appreciate it if you would subscribe to the podcast, rate and review us on whatever podcast app that you're using right now. And of course, always share those with your friends on Facebook, Twitter, or other social media. If you've got a question, comment, correction, gripe, manifesto, or anything else you'd like us to know about, you can always hit us up at mail at politicsguys.com. We're also on Facebook and Twitter, as I've already mentioned, and you will find all of those links below in the show notes. The executive producers of The Politics Guys are Bruce Johnson, Wilma Moreno, Andra Masker, Daniel Toe, Ryan Beasley, and Don Oglesby. We'll be back with a new Midweek Supporter episode. See you then.